Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it is Friday night, and so it is time to talk about science and skepticism on Evidence-Based Radio. So, as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous episodes as podcasts. Uh, if you are tuning in after just having been listening to Democracy Now!, uh, I think you'll probably agree that it's been a rough few weeks. Uh, it continues to be rough dealing with everything that is going on in this country. Uh, it is very difficult some days. And so I'm going to try for the most part today to stick to sort of good things slash interesting things that don't really drag us down that much. But first, I do want to talk about something that has been much in the news lately, because I think it's important. And that is breastfeeding. So as I hope you know, I am actively against the current regime. And I absolutely think that they do not ever have a scientific or fact-based motivation for anything. Their motivation is always some sort of monetary or some sort of just plain sticking it to people who aren't old, white, and rich. Uh, that tends to be their motivation for everything, it seems, and so I definitely don't agree with them on pretty much anything. But that being said, I do have to admit that I agree to an extent that the resolution supporting breastfeeding that had been put through um, by the World Health Organization and presented at the uh, UN was indeed flawed. While breastfeeding is the ideal, there has been a lot of stigma placed on women who, for whatever reason, can't breastfeed. And it's not okay to make those mothers feel like they are substantially hurting their children by not breastfeeding. Millions of children have been raised on formula and have turned out just fine. Many women can't breastfeed for a myriad of reasons. And so to suggest that we should push breastfeeding even harder is frustrating because it's already being pushed a lot and it's really hard for women who cannot do that. Now, I'm not denying that there are some advantages to breastfeeding, uh, but the real importance really should be focused on well-fed babies with access to the best nutrition, either from the mother or from formula. And that includes access to things like clean water and sufficient food so that both the mother and child can be healthy. And um, that is really what it comes down to. And of course, this shouldn't be a political football at all. It should be like many other things that shouldn't be political footballs. It should be a decision between a woman and her doctor or her family, things like that, um, or just a woman herself. And so it's just very frustrating. And so the amazing uh, Kevin Senapathy, who uh, is one of the sort of science mom bloggers and who is just a fantastic and amazing blogger, and you should definitely be following her on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere. Uh, she has written about this before um, as someone who is a mother, has had children, and has gone through the issues of, uh, you know, feeling guilted for not breastfeeding uh, her children all of the time. And so she has done extensive research on this. And so she, what she says is studies that claim that universal breastfeeding will prevent hundreds of thousands of child deaths rely on spurious data extrapolated to overstated conclusions. This often comes at the expense of women and our autonomy which is ignored in myriad ways, especially when we become moms. And 
the WHO, or World Health Organization, is partly responsible for causing harm with the undue pressure to breastfeed, which I've covered a few times. This isn't to say that formula companies don't engage in predatory practices. They absolutely do. But that doesn't mean that supporting women in their feeding choices is the same as aligning with industry. And I fear that the uproar over this resolution will turn women away from feeding options. I haven't read the resolution, but I'm going to hazard a guess that it doesn't include sanitation and clean water access goals so that babies all over the world can get the nourishment they need and so that women all over the world can be free to make the best choices for themselves and their babies. And I think that that's really what it comes down to. And of course, it's not just other places. There's also this problem here in the U.S. So um, Kevin had put that on her Facebook and many women responded with uh, stories about how they had experienced this in U.S. hospitals. And so there's this thing called sort of baby-friendly or breastfeeding-friendly hospitals. And basically, they force women to attempt to breastfeed even if they are having severe trouble. And, you know, these women are reporting that they were basically made to feel inadequate and wrong if they weren't able to breastfeed and weren't given the support that they needed to recover from birth. And so this is a huge issue. The woman is, when she first gives birth, especially if she's had a C-section, that's major surgery. And, uh, you know, some of these women were reporting that they weren't getting any support from the nurses and basically were being told that they had to take care of the baby the entire time because if they didn't take care of the baby the entire time, the bonding would be ruined and everything like that. And it's just not true. And it's very frustrating. Um, women have enough to deal with. They should definitely be able to be able to make these sorts of choices and not have it be someone else's business and not have it be especially politicized. So while the current regime is almost certainly not doing this for the benefit of mothers, it doesn't mean, again, that breastfeeding is automatically the right choice for all moms. It just isn't. Okay, so that is the tiny bit of sort of real controversial stuff we're going to talk about tonight, uh, which shouldn't be controversial at all, but somehow it always ends up being. Uh, also, uh, just as an aside, women who do breastfeed should absolutely positively be able to do it pretty much wherever they damn well please. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to say that it's important for women to breastfeed, you then can't say, well, you can only do it in a bathroom or you can only do it in your home or whatever. That is ludicrous. And I just don't understand. Well, I do understand because people are really bad at actually following through on the logic of their statements a lot of times. But um, yeah, so if you want to breastfeed, perfectly acceptable, should be able to do it, uh, you know, in the park or in a restaurant or, you know, whatever. Okay. So again, let's, let's move on. So, uh, this second thing is technically not uncontroversial. I'm sure that there are people who are not happy about this, but I'm delighted about it. So I'm going to tell you about it nonetheless. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dr. Bob Sears was served with a suspended suspension of his um, license after complaints from patients of gross negligence, repeated negligent acts, and failure to maintain adequate and accurate records. Now, if you don't know, Sears is a notorious anti-vax doctor. He is the author of the uh, really rather misnamed vaccine book, uh, which is full of misinformation about vaccines, as well as a book on autism, which not only claims that autism is caused by vaccines, which it absolutely 100% is not, but also suggests dangerous treatments for autistic children, such as chelation therapy, uh, which is something that should only be used for heavy metal poisoning, and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now, uh, as I mentioned, the suspension was uh, stayed, and so he is now on probation, which means, among other things, that he can't monitor nurse practitioners or physician's assistants, and that his practice will have to be monitored. He will have to pay the board uh, 
the Medical Board of California for that monitoring. Uh, and so this action stems from a uh, suit brought against him by the state back in September of 2016. It referred to a child known as J.G., for which Dr. Sears was charged with writing an unjustified permanent medical exemption from vaccines, not examining the child when he was brought in with a headache after allegedly being hit with a hammer by his father two weeks earlier, uh, which most physicians would have done thorough tests to check for a concussion. Uh, and finally, he was charged again with poor record keeping, uh, which is a separate issue under California law. Now, it's important to note that despite the fact that the uh, one of the charges is that he wrote a uh, unreasonable vaccine exemption, it's not really about the vaccine exemption itself. It's about the fact that he never looked at the child's records, previous records. And so he just wrote it. Basically, he talked to the parent and was like, okay, sure, and never actually looked at any of the child's records to see if that was actually indicated. And so his anti-vaccine stance, in essence, really doesn't have anything to do with the complaint. The real issue is his lack of treatment and improperly diagnosing exemptions without a patient history. So for the next three years, Dr. Sears will have to be monitored. The agreement states that it is hereby ordered that physician and surgeon certificate number blah, 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 issued to Robert William Sears, MD, is revoked. The revocation is stayed and respondent is placed on probation for 35 months on the following terms and conditions. Now, among those conditions is the monitoring of assistance I mentioned, and also that he will need to take training of at least 40 hours a year in medical education courses, as well as take a professionalism or ethics course approved by the board. He will have to inform any hospitals where he has privileges of the probation he will need to report to the board quarterly to update them on his compliance, and he will need to inform the board if he plans to leave California for more than 30 days. Now, this may seem pretty harsh, but it's pretty standard for a doctor with this sort of complaint against them. The crucial thing will be who is designated the monitor. If the monitor is a doctor with anti-vax sympathies, then the punishment will likely not have the desired results. But there is a silver lining. The doctor cannot have any prior affiliation with Dr. Sears, so hopefully someone who believes in vaccines will be assigned to him. We can only hope that this helps other children to avoid this sort of neglectful care. And so that's really the problem, is that Dr. Sears is not giving these children a good level of care. If he was anti-vax but still giving children the right amount of care, it would be one thing, but he is not. To dismiss the a child without doing an examination when they come in with a headache and they've been previously hit by a hammer, I don't understand how someone would do that. That is negligence. Uh, it is absolutely negligence as far as I can tell. Um, and so, yeah. But of course, to Dr. Bob, this is all a conspiracy against him, and he's already sort of circling his wagons and talking about how, you know, this is persecution and blah, blah, blah. Uh, he has no interest in actually learning from this, and so we will have to see, we will have to wait and see what happens. Hopefully, someone who is actually pro-vaccine will be set to monitor him, so he will actually have to do a better job with his practice, at least for the next three years. One can only hope. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about another piece of good news, which is, uh, again, technically controversial, but I hope that you will agree with me that it is very good news. Uh, and so this is a story about how a group of creationists failed to force a school board in Collier County, Florida, to remove evolutionary teaching from the textbooks used in the district. 
So it turns out that as part of the continuing push to destroy public education, Florida's legislature apparently passed a law that allows any resident of a county to challenge material presented in textbooks and established a process by which school boards must entertain these complaints. And so this led a couple of weeks ago to a five-hour meeting where four residents of the county tried to challenge the teaching of evolution in Collier County. Now, the textbooks which teach the, that evolution is a scientific fact, uh, which, with much supporting evidence, were approved on a 3-2 vote. Now, of course, I would have preferred it to have been a 5-0 vote, but honestly, these days, I will take what I can get. The citizens opposed to evolution had 220 objections to the contents of 18 textbooks. Luckily, defenders of science also showed up at the hearing. Brandon Haunt, a high school biology teacher, testified that, If you actually take a look at each individual fact, you'll find that they're hollow. They're based on misinterpretations and wishful thinking and religion. And in fact, it's this last part that is the real issue. Time and again, we find that the objections are religiously motivated and not in good faith. Objections to actual disputes of scientific facts and theories. And so it is nice to see them once again defeated. It's not like they are talking about things like the idea of gradual evolution versus punctuated equilibrium, or the fact that there has been a lot of recent debate about the origin of Homo sapiens, and so we're finding new genetic evidence of different lines of Homo in, uh, in East Asia. You know, these are things that are debates when it comes to evolution. Uh, it is not, the debate is not whether or not evolution is true. Evolution is true as far as everything that we have seen. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of cliches about this, but it's really true. Like, if you found a skeleton of a bunny next to a skeleton of a dinosaur, that would be a problem for evolution. Everything that we have thus far found is not a problem for evolution. All of the fossils, there've been, you know, some fossils over the years that have been turned out to be hoaxes. There are some things out there still that creationists point to that are obvious hoaxes. Uh, some of those rocks that purport to have both human and dinosaur footprints in the same layer, uh, those are clearly fakes. And so there really isn't any substantial evidence that suggests that evolution is not real. It is absolutely real. It is absolutely the way that, that humans, that animals, that everything on the planet that is uh, alive, that is how they evolve. That is how they are created and have continued to uh, diverge into the myriad forms that we find today. And of course, again, this there is, of course, that misnomer that if you believe in evolution, you can't believe in God or other things like that. Uh, that is patently untrue. Um, many, many, many people who believe in God also believe in evolution. Uh, evolution has nothing to do with the uh, theory of the origin of life. Uh, evolution only starts once life starts. So that question is still up in the air. Uh, we have a lot of good evidence for how it could have been done, but if people want to believe that it was done through some sort of divine purpose or through aliens or whatever, you can still do that and believe in evolution. And so it's important to continue to push up this because it just it's so it's one of those really frustrating points where we are trying these people are trying to deny children access to real solid in the scientific community uncontroversial ideas and it is not okay and we have to keep pushing back and so I'm very excited that it was 3-2. Again, I wish it had been 5-0, but again, going to take it where I can get it. 
Okay. So now we're done with that sort of stuff. We are going to just talk about fun animal things and other stories that are just really neat and completely, I hope, <laughs> uncontroversial. So uh, I was musing the other day that I should probably just rename this show the uh, Animals Are Smarter Than You Think Radio Hour uh, and just spend basically all of my time talking about how, you know, crows beat kids at cognitive tests, uh, how dolphins have names and they'll remember the, the particular whistle that is a dolphin's name even if they haven't seen that dolphin in decades. Uh, the fact that cats really only uh, vocalize because they know it works on humans and they know that uh, it basically sounds like a baby because if you have feral cat colonies, they're almost completely silent. Uh, adult cats don't really talk to one another ever. Um, <laughs> things like that, you know? And uh, so I definitely spend a lot of time talking about that. And that's what we're going to start off with tonight. So first off, there was a recent video, which I will post on the Facebook. Um, I believe it was from New Scientist. And it showed an experiment where a crow was uh, basically taught that she could exchange scraps of paper for food by inserting them into a hopper. And so the crow was first given large pieces and then smaller pieces, which both achieved the same result. The crow was then given a large sheet of paper and the researchers watched as she first cut out large scraps to add to the hopper and then smaller scraps to in order to receive treats. And so, of course, this may not seem like a huge leap for a human, but crows have very small brains and it's actually kind of mind blowing that they are able to make these sorts of cognitive leaps. And so it's just really fascinating to see this crow, you know, being given a piece of paper and then literally ripping, you know, kind of trying to get almost a uh, rectangular piece out of a larger uh, sheet of paper in order to mimic the token that she had been given previously. And it's just really fascinating. And so the next story is a report published in Science that ravens, which of course are the larger cousins of crows, can anticipate the nature, time, and location of future events based on prior experiences. Now, we know that, for instance, apes can do this, but not monkeys. The fact that ravens, who diverged from a common ancestor over 300 million years ago, have also developed this ability is another crazy, mind-blowing fact. And what's even more mind-blowing is that they might have done it first <laughs> because birds have been around a lot longer than uh, primates have. <laughs> so just think about that. And so researchers Ken Kabadai and Matthias Ozvath from the Department of Cognitive Science at Lund University worked with five ravens, two males and three females. And basically what they did was they ran them through four different tests. They wanted to test if the ravens could develop strategies to solve puzzles that would be outside of their experiences in the wild, including tool use and bartering with humans. They also wanted to see if they could make decisions that involved, an, involved a 15-minute or even a 17-hour interval into the future. And so the first thing they did was they wanted to test their ability at self-control and decision-making that would affect the future. And the first test was that the ravens were given uh, a puzzle box, which contained a reward and which included a simple tool to open the box. And so basically they trained the ravens how to do that. Once they were able to understand how to use the tool to open the box, and of course, what was inside of the box, the ravens were presented with just the box, but no tool. The box was then removed and the ravens were presented with another choice, uh, or with a choice, I should say. Uh, pick the tool or one of several quote-unquote distractor objects. Nearly every raven ignored the distractors and chose the tool, even though the box had been removed from the scene. When the box was returned in 15 minutes, the ravens were able to open the box using the tool with an 86% success rate. 
they were shown to have similar results after a 17-hour wait, once again using the tool to open the box and get the reward. They were then taught how to select a token to barter for a reward. They were able to do this with 78% proficiency. And this is actually better, a better rate than tests performed with orangutans, bonobos, and chimps, which uh, remember bonobos and chimps are our closest primate cousins. And so this shows, according to the paper, that ravens can, quote, select, save, and later use either a tool or an exchangeable token they acquire that acquired functionality. And so finally, they were tested in both short and long-term intervals with a choice between the correct tool to open the box, some distractor objects, and an immediate reward. Now, the important thing is that that immediate reward was not as good as the one that was contained in the puzzle box. And so the ravens remembering the reward from the box were more likely to choose the tool than the immediate reward. This level of self-control was comparable to that seen in great apes. This paper is significant because it shows that ravens can indeed plan into the near future, i.e. overnight, based on behavioral principles and not based on simple trial and error learning, said Andreas Neider, a, neuro a neuroscientist at the University of Tübingen in Germany, who was not involved with the study, uh, but was interviewed by the website Gizmodo. A second and maybe even more important aspect is that the raven's planning abilities are not limited to specific everyday situations ravens are used to and probably especially endowed for, such as foraging or food catching, but can be applied to totally novel situations. Solving problems, even if they are not related to the usual daily business, is a clear sign of mental flexibility and therefore intelligence. Now... Alex Taylor, who studies crow intelligence at the University of Auckland, was a bit more cautious. Taylor noted that in similar tests with apes, when offered the choice between a tool and immediate food a second time, the apes chose the food because, having already gotten a tool, they didn't eat a second. He suggests this means that choosing the tool doesn't indicate future thought, but rather a strong initial association with food. And so, um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, uh, but even if there is not that further leap being involved, the researchers still showed that ravens were able to adapt to new situations in a way that suggests intelligence. And, you know, I think that in some ways that makes sense to me. If you've already gotten a tool, then you don't need a second tool. You just you can get food the second time because you've already got a tool. Um, I think that what was missing in that, and I need to track down the actual study and able to be able to figure out what was going on there is, did they still have the tool? Because if they still had the tool, then that makes perfect sense to take the food instead of the, a second tool. Because again, you only need one tool if it's the same apparatus. So yeah, um, not quite sure about that. But anyways, it is the time when we should take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we will come back and switch from our friends, the crows and ravens to parrots for a while. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking 
and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to switch from our friends, the Corvids, over to parrots. Um, actually, before we leave them, I haven't read the study yet, so I can't really talk about it very much. But I thought it was interesting that uh, there is a study that says that uh, ravens apparently don't get along very well with crows. And apparently crows are the ones who do it. Uh, they are apparently cranky all the cranky. <laughs> um, apparently they're not very, uh, friendly and they don't like ravens very much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I adore corvids, obviously. Uh, I talk about them a lot. I even have a crow, uh, tattooed on my arm. Uh, and so I do enjoy talking about them pretty much at length when any, what, whenever someone is willing to listen, but, uh, I do have to concede that parrots are probably even smarter. Uh, and so researchers now have a pretty good suggestion as to why these more colorful and sassy birds are smarter than my dark brooding loves. <laughs> Research published uh, last week in the journal Scientific Reports has identified a particular circuit in the brain of parrots that the researchers suggest might just be the reason they're so incredibly smart. A team of scientists led by psychologist Christiane Gutierrez-Ibanez uh, from the University of Alberta found that an area of the brain called the medial spiriform nucleus, or SPM, performs a role similar to that of the pontine nuclei in primates. In primates, the pontine nuclei transfers information between the cortex and the cerebellum, which are, of course, the two largest areas of the brain, and thus is considered an important factor in higher-order learning. And, or thinking, I should say. This area is larger in primates than in other mammals. Now, the same can be said for the SPM in parrots. The researchers looked at brain samples from nearly 100 birds, including chickens, songbirds, waterfowls, owls, and parrots. The SPM is very large in parrots. It's actually two to five times larger in parrots than in other birds like chickens, said Gutierrez Ibanez. Independently, parrots have evolved an enlarged area that connects the cortex and the cerebellum, similar to primates. This is another fascinating example of convergence between parrots and primates. It starts with sophisticated behaviors like tool use and self-awareness, and can also be seen in the brain. The more we look at the brains, the more similarities we see. Now, 
this of course is not the end of the story. We already know that birds actually have a greater density of neurons than mammals, and they have what is called the dorsal ventricle ridge, which researchers believe is equivalent to the neocortex in humans. The area, this area of the brain in primates is responsible for sensory perception, spatial reasoning, conscious thought, and language, at least in humans. And of course, remember that our friends the corvids don't have an exaggerated SPM, but still manage to be pretty darn intelligent. Uh, but of course, you know, parrots are really amazing. Uh, I don't know if you, any of you ever saw any of the footage of Alex, the African gray parrot, who basically, uh, I think had like a toddler's education. He could, uh, do like math and all solve all sorts of puzzles and talked and did all sorts of crazy things, uh, that you would not normally think that a bird would be able to do. And, uh, there are definitely other, um, parrots out there that are incredibly smart as well. Now, part of the issue is that we're not a hundred percent sure that the two brain structures are truly working the same way. Birds actually have a version of the pontine nuclei, but in their brains, it's, it's tiny. The researchers are planning to study the SPM in more detail to better characterize its function and how and why it processes different types of information. By exploring the similarities and differences between the SPM and the pontine nuclei, researchers may be able to shed more light on the development of intelligence in both birds and primates. Because, as I mentioned, uh, birds have actually been evolving their brains a lot longer than primates. And uh, so even though we have been on different paths, that brain just keeps being really interestingly uh, similar to our own. And so there might be some other issues going on there. Uh, you know, there are certain issues or certain constraints that any kind of brain is going to have that there's going to be certain ways that nature just does things because that's the easiest way to do them. And so we find all these weird and interesting versions of um, what is called convergent evolution, where two very different animals, basically evolution has come to the same uh, solution to some problem or some uh, issue that they have. And so it's really fascinating to see this. And so, yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep talking about parrots, but we're going to make sort of a 180 turn from uh, talking about parrots themselves to a really quirky story about uh, sort of Renaissance uh, art and what it tells us about human trade routes. And so four sketches and a written description of a white cockatoo from the mid 13th century uh, from in a Sicilian manuscript, which is now at the Vatican Library, has pushed back the date of when trade between merchants in Europe and people in the north of Australia first had contact, at least via trade goods. And so the description and images of the Australasian cockatoo were discovered by University of Melbourne researcher Heather Dalton and her colleagues from Finland in the manuscript De Art Ven Venandi cum avibus, which translates to the art of hunting with birds. And so the manuscript dates from between 1241 and 1248 and was written in Latin uh, by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Now, of course, as with most medieval documents, the margins are filled with drawings, in this case falcons, falconers, and other animals found in the emperor's palaces. The new images are 250 years older than the previous record, record holder uh, for Europe, and that was actually discovered too much fanfare in 2014, uh, also by Dr. Dalton. And so uh, that is of a cockatoo perched among the background of the 1496 altarpiece Madonna della Vittoria uh, by the artist Andrea Mantegna. And so that painting, now at the Louvre, shows what is believed to be a sulfur-crested cockatoo perched above the Madonna. And so 
Dr. Dalton found this and actually uh, had it verified. She actually had, she actually worked for 10 years <laughs> being meticulous and, you know, uh, talking to tons of people to make sure that she was right and that this really was a parrot that is native to the uh, northern reaches of uh, Australasia. And so, you know, after 10 years, she finally felt confident to say, yes, this is it. And now <laughs> she's done even better. So the new parrot described in the text in the text as a crested talking paragraph parrot could be a female triton sulfur um sulfur crested cockatoo and so the bird comes from australia's northern tip um it could also come from new guinea or islands surrounding either new guinea or indonesia the parrot was said to be a gift from the fourth abayid sultan of egypt who frederick ii referred to as the sultan of babylon uh <laughs> you know, close. <laughs> Not really. Anyways, the two had met in 1217, which was a year before the Kurdish al-Malik Muhammad al-Kamil uh, became the Sultan of Egypt. They corresponded and exchanged books and animals for the next 20 years. Now, the cockatoo would have taken several years to arrive in Sicily, uh, mostly through overland routes. Although our part of the world is still considered the very last to have been discovered, this Eurocentric view is increasingly being challenged by finds such as this, Dr. Dalton said. Small craft sailed between islands buying and selling fabrics, animal skins, and live animals before making for ports in places such as Java, where they sold their wares to Chinese, Arab, and Persian merchants. The fact that a cockatoo reached Sicily during the 13th century shows that merchants plying their trade to the north of Australia were part of a flourishing network that reached west to the Middle East and beyond. And so, again, we find that people in the past were much more connected and much more sophisticated than we once believed. And so that is very cool. Um, and so they probably would have come in to either uh, China and gone across. I believe the Silk Road was still um, in use at that time. I'm forgetting exactly what the timeline for the Silk Road is, because at some point it becomes uh, climate change actually uh, hit. And so the Silk Road, in part, ceased being a uh, route of passage because of climate change. So now if you go to uh, the Taklamakan Desert, for instance, that used to have a thriving uh, society there, uh, Sarmakand and places like that. And now you find desiccated mummies and uh, all sorts of really well-preserved artifacts because it's a arid desert now. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly when that started to happen, um, but it may have been that they would have come over the Silk Road and then over um, overland to Sicily. This was before there was a lot of shipping, so it definitely would have been coming overland. It would not have been coming in uh, merchant vessels that were traveling around the world because this is slightly before uh, they started to really strike out, before uh, the Portuguese started sending triremes out into the world and things like that. Um, okay, so let us move on to something completely different. And uh, this is some good news about the uptake of folic acid amongst U.S. Uh, mothers. And so in 1997, the U.S. government mandated that grain products should be fortified with folic acid in order to help lessen the risk of neural tube defects in developing fetuses. Uh, and this is certainly something that I remember hearing uh, when I was younger and might still have been considered to be possibly interested in having children. Uh, and there are, you know, people are always like, oh, make sure you're getting enough folic acid uh, because you, you kind of need to be already getting folic acid before you even know you're pregnant because it's really important right from the start. 
And so that was pretty much why the government did this. And so a new study looks at the results of this change and shows that not only has this helped with neural tube defects in those children fully exposed to folic acid in the womb, but also suggests that there has actually been a reduction in the risk of psychosis in youth due to exposure. And so the researchers looked at three large cohort studies, one conducting it conducted at Mass General Hospital of 222 I'm sorry, 292 children between the ages of 8 and 18 who were born between January 1993 and December of 2001. So sort of on either side of the 1997 date. They also looked at two other cohort studies, the Philadelphia Neurodevelopmental Cohort and the National Institutes of Health Magnetic Resonance Imaging Study of Normal Brain Development, which comprised 1,078 children between 8 and 18. Uh, They were born for the Philadelphia cohort between 1992 and 2003, and between 1983 and 1995 for the NIH cohort. So that's the cohort of uh, children that weren't necessarily exposed to a full amount of folic acid because they were all born before the 1997 uh, start of this program. And so they uh, represent the sort of control before the rollout of the folic acid mandate. The paper notes that, quote, folate may play other important roles in the development of the fetal central nervous system, given its contribution to DNA synthesis, DNA, and histone methylation, uh, as well as gene expression. The hypothesis that prenatal exposure to folate may also influence Influence postnatal brain development arises in part from epidemiological studies that linked starvation during early fetal life with both neural tube defects and schizophrenia, and is further supported by studies that link preconceptional folic acid supplements to lower risk of language delay and autism. However, um, oh, however, one study did fail to find such an association in the past. And so they, there was some, um, you know, a little bit of unsettledness about this, but this new one really kind of shows that it is working. And of course they do have limitations. So we always want to be sure, especially in these sort of medical stories to remember that it's not kind of black and white, that there are definitely issues in all of these. Um, and so there could have been unrecognized, unrecognized temporal confounders, which means that something else was happening around the same time, um, but which they weren't able to capture in the data. Uh, and also there was for some of the cohorts, a lack of individual level maternal data rather than group level, um, maternal data. And so despite that, though, the researchers are confident in their conclusion that the addition of folate can be seen as significant. They conclude, in replicated cohorts, fetal exposure to population-wide folic acid fortification was associated with subsequent alterations in cortical development among school-aged youths. In turn, these cortical changes were associated with reduced risk of psychosis. Our findings suggest that protective effects of prenatal folic acid exposure may extend beyond prevention of neural tube defects and span neural development during childhood and adolescence. So that is very cool. All right, so let us go back to one more story about uh, sort of ancient humans, and then we will wrap up for the evening. So A new analysis of horses shows the oldest evidence of veterinary care. A team led by William Taylor of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History analyzed remains from horses buried by the Mongolian pastoral culture known as the Deerstone Kyrgyzstan culture. And so they roamed the Mongolian plains between around 1300 and 700 BCE. They are named for the stones carved with beautiful deer and for the stone mounds or caragursers they left behind. Now, they were also known for elaborate and often huge horse burials. The report, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, 
found that these ancient people would remove baby teeth from horses, which were causing them pain or uh, giving them difficulty when they were trying to feed. Previous evidence has shown that horses were an important livestock animal for the herders, and they might have actually been among the first people to ride horses. So, you know, um, initially they probably were using them much like cattle, uh, but eventually they realized that horses could be ridden, and then they were able to do that, because of course Mongolian steppe people are pretty much quite possibly the first and uh, continue to be some of the uh, best horsemen in the uh, world. And so the study notes that we may think of veterinary care as kind of a Western science, uh, but herders in Mongolia today practice relatively sophisticated procedures using very simple equipment. This result the results of our study show that a careful understanding of horse anatomy and a tradition of care was first developed not in the sedentary civilizations of China or the Mediterranean, but centuries earlier among the nomadic people whose livelihoods depended on the well-being of their horses. So they also found clear evidence for a change in the way that veterinary health was practiced as horse technology developed. And so evidence can be found of adaptation to the use of bronze and metal mouthpieces in bridles used for riding. Uh, the nomads actually developed ways to extract a vestigial, vestigial tooth that some horses develop, which is called a wolf tooth. And so this would have been problematic when trying to use that metal bit. And so they found ways to remove it. The development of the metal bit allowed greater control of horses by mounted riders and would have fueled the ability of horses to be used for new purposes. Unfortunately, things such as warfare. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, Nicole Boivin, director of the Department of Archaeology at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, explains... In many ways, the movements of horses and horse-mounted peoples during the first millennium BCE reshaped the cultural and biological landscapes of Eurasia. Dr. Taylor's study shows that veterinary dentistry, developed by inner Asian herders, may have been a key factor that helped to stimulate the spread of people, ideas, and organisms between East and West. And of course, it again shows that early people were concerned with the health and comfort of their animals and were able to develop innovations in order to keep them healthy. Uh, so yeah, definitely pretty cool. Now, finally tonight, I did want to make a suggestion that if you need some stress relief, I suggest looking for uh, researchers who are giving neural networks the task of basically watching shows, uh, TV shows, then coming up with their own scripts. Uh, the results are often incredibly hilarious. Uh, really anything that neural networks are creating is often wonderfully surreal. Um, they have come a long way, but they are definitely nowhere near yet uh, contenders for passing a Turing test. So they definitely still have some ways to go. I will try and find a couple of the best ones and uh, post those on the Facebook page later on as well. All right, so that is all the time I have for evidence-based. Please do stay tuned for civil politics, where I apparently will be uh, guest hosting. So uh, if you want to hear more of my voice, uh, please stay tuned. And even if you don't want to hear more of my voice, still please stay tuned if you want to hear about politics, I guess. <laughs> have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.